Thank you for joining us today. At ResLife, our mission is to develop committed followers of Jesus Christ to reach the world. Our content is created to equip and empower you in God's purpose. We hope you enjoy this message. Hey man, turn to your neighbor and say, tonight we're going to learn something brand new from the Bible. Come on, I want to hear it. Tonight we're going to learn something brand new from the Bible. Amen. Amen. I want you to go ahead and open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And before we get into the Word, I just want to say what a pleasure it is to be here, to be with Pastor Dwayne and be with Jenny, Janie, and to be with you. And I want to thank you for coming on a Sunday night to hear the Bible. This is the committed group. And I want to say thank you for being here tonight. And before we get into the Word, I just want to give a quick report about Russia. Things are going very well in Russia. You know, when I come to the United States, I hear so much on the news about Russia that is just fantasy. It does not match the reality that Denise and I have lived in for 30 years. And I told Pastor Dwayne, I'm not the spokesman of Russia. I'm the spokesman of the Lord. But I kind of feel a responsibility to say, don't believe everything you hear on the news. There's a lot of fake news out there. God is moving in Russia. Things are getting better in Russia. Next year, in January, Denise and I begin our 30th year in the former Soviet Union. Is that amazing? 30 years. We thought we were moving there for one year. But you know, sometimes the Lord tricks you into long-term plans. I was willing to surrender to a year. But when we were there, we understood this was a long-term commitment. And you know, when Denise and I and our family disembarked from our aircraft nearly 30 years ago. Denise and I and Paul, Paul was eight, Philip was six, Joel was two. We walked down those stairs. At the bottom of the stairs, right by the plane on the tarmac were Soviet soldiers, because there were still Soviet soldiers at that time, standing with their machine guns. And we as a family got on our knees on the tarmac, right at the bottom of the stairs, right outside the airplane, bent over and kissed the ground. And we said, Lord, if we're going to be here, we want you to put this land in our heart. We just didn't know how deeply he was going to put it into our hearts. (laughs) And now 30 years later, we're still there. Really, it is the headquarters of our ministry. We love living there. Our sons married Russian girls. We have eight Russian grandchildren. And in fact, when everybody comes at our house for a family event, there is hardly a word of English spoken in our house. We're a Russian-speaking family. Is that amazing? Who would have ever imagined? It seems so unlikely that that could have taken place. But when you say yes to the call of God, unlikely things take place. And that's what awaits you. Anytime you say yes to the call of God. Anyway, things are good in Russia, and I just wanted you to to know that. But Father, we thank you for tonight. And Father, tonight I ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would transport us into the first chapter of Philippians. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would visually transport us into the first century. Let us feel what the early saints felt. Let us see what they saw. And let us understand these verses in a way that we've never understood them before. Holy Spirit, you're the teacher. You're the communicator. You're the only one that can give revelation. And tonight we're asking you to open the veil of the Spirit to us and let us see what we've never seen before. In the name of Jesus. And everybody said...
Amen. So open your Bible to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians is called the epistle of joy. And the reason it is called the epistle of joy is because Paul writes about joy somewhere between 15 and 19 times in the book of Philippians. Considering that there are just four chapters, this really is remarkable. But over and over and over in this book, Paul says, I joy, I rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. You are my crown. You are my joy. That word joy appears over and over and over in the book of Philippians. And yet when you understand where Paul was when he wrote this book, it almost seems impossible that he could be obsessed with joy in the horrible place where he was. And when you come to Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, beginning in verse 12, and I'm reading from the King James Version. He says, but I would you should understand, brethren. When he says, I would, the Greek is very strong. I really want you to comprehend. I want you to know my story, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel. So according to verse 12, something unusual has happened to him. Then when you come to verse 13, we find that he is in prison. So that my bonds in Christ are manifest where? In all the palace. Everybody say palace. And in all other places. Either underline or circle that word palace in verse 13 because that is the key to where Paul was when he wrote the book of Philippians. But before we can discuss that, first we're going to back up in history. May I take you back in time just for a few moments? to set the scene for why Paul was arrested. When Paul was arrested, there was a man on the throne whose name was Nero. Nero was insane. But if anybody had come by insanity naturally, it would have been Nero because he was from quite a twisted family. For example, his great uncle was Caligula. Have any of you ever heard of Caligula? Caligula was one of the most demented, perverted rulers of the Roman Empire. His uncle was Tiberius. Tiberius, who we even read about in the New Testament, was so twisted and such a sexual deviant that he even took an island off the coast of Italy called Capri and turned it into an orgy island. It was called a sex fantasy island, and that's where Tiberius spent the majority of his time. And on that island, all kinds of twisted, demented, dark things took place. And in fact, at one time, Tiberius was so obsessed with all of these sexual fantasies that he retreated to the Isle of Capri and stayed there 10 years, never coming out of this delusion. And during that time, he brought his nephew, whose name was Caligula. And Caligula, who was a young man and very impressionable at the time, saw things that no young man should ever see. And because of the things that he saw on that island and the things that he experienced, it affected Caligula mentally and Caligula himself became twisted. And so when Caligula became emperor, he carried on the tradition of Tiberius. Caligula had three sisters. He had an incestuous relationship with all three of those sisters. One of his sisters' name was Agrippina, who became the mother of Nero. Because Agrippina had been sexually abused by her brother, she became obsessed with controlling everything that was around her to make sure no one ever abused her again. The entire family was a result of all kinds of sexual abuse and physical abuse and emotional abuse. And Agrippina became known as a maniac 
when it came to controlling the environment and everything in her surroundings. Well, her husband died, but she wanted to retain power, so she married a man named Claudius. Claudius became the next ruler of the Roman Empire. But at that time, she already had a son by her first marriage, and his name was Nero. At the time that she married Claudius, she saw this as an opportunity to seize power and to stay near to the throne. So she had a brother who was an emperor. She was the daughter of an emperor. She married a relative who became an emperor. She was very near to all of this power. And when she saw that Claudius had another son whose name was Britannicus, who probably would become the next emperor, she didn't want that to happen. She wanted her own son to be the emperor. So she made sure that the cupbearer who served food to Claudius the emperor served him poison mushrooms. He ate the mushrooms, and Claudius died. Immediately, she declared that Nero was the next emperor of the Roman Empire, and she had Britannicus killed. So I want you to see there's all kinds of perversion, all kinds of deviant behavior, murderous plots in this family. And at the age of 16, Nero became the emperor of the Roman Empire. Now, how many of you can remember when you were 16? Can you imagine if an entire empire was placed in your hands at the age of 16 and you were told that you were God and there was nothing that you could not have? Well, remarkably, the first five years of his rule were called the golden years of Nero, and he actually did a fine job in those first five years. But in the first five years, he was very closely monitored by his teachers, whose names were Seneca and Lucia. He was very controlled by the Senate, and his mother was a dominating force in his life. Nero never wanted to be the emperor. He wanted to be an actor. It was not fit for an emperor to be an actor. He wanted to be a musician. It was considered that this was unfit for an emperor to be a musician. He wanted to be an artist. He believed that he was an architect. He really had a creative personality. And yet the rule of government was thrust upon him. And his mother wouldn't let him express himself, wouldn't let him hang out with the artists or the musicians or the people who were involved in the arts. And he grew to hate his mother who had such a dominating, manipulating role in his life. About the time that he turned 20 to 22 years old, he got tired of all these voices speaking into his life. He began to say, why do I have to listen to all these voices when I am Nero? I am the emperor of the Roman Empire. And one by one, he began to have important people assassinated. His teachers, Seneca and Lucy, he had them killed. But there was one voice, (laughs) the most dominating voice of all, the voice of his mother, Agrippina. And in fact, this woman had such a lust for power, she ordered that a coin be minted in the city of Rome. It was unthinkable. But on one side of the coin was a double-headed silhouette, the silhouette of Nero with his mother's silhouette behind it. That is how dominating she was. So he said, Mother, I want you to come over for dinner. So he called his mother to his villa, which was near to the beach. And he said, Mother, I have prepared for you a marvelous gift. And he presented to her a yacht. It's what we would call a yacht. 
But what was not obvious is the yacht was designed to sink. And that night he said to his mother, Mom, tonight we're sending you home in your new wonderful ship. He put her on the ship. They went out to sea. And while it was en route to her own villa, the ship began to break to pieces. It sank. And everyone on the ship died except Agrippina, who was a strong swimmer, and she swam to the shore. And when Nero discovered that his mother survived, he was so enraged, he says, enough of this patience at killing my mother. And he dispatched his servants to her villa, and they stabbed her to death. When he removed his mother, it was like the lid of any sanity that he still had was removed. Suddenly, there were no monitoring voices in his life. And little insanity, mental sickness, took over. Nero began to declare he was the greatest musician that had ever lived. He even said that he could sing better than anybody else. Early history says his voice was just wretched. No one could bear to hear him sing. But he was so depraved and broke so many rules of society that even as the emperor, he began to travel across the Roman Empire giving concerts for the public. And when he would sing, people were terrified to move, to stand, or even go out of the theater because if they left during his concert, they knew he would have them killed. We even have the record of one woman who was nine months pregnant. She gave birth to her baby during one of his concerts because she was afraid to get up and move while he was singing. People were simply terrified of him. He also said that he was the greatest architect that had ever lived. And because he was the greatest architect that had ever lived and because he was Nero, he came up with a plan to rename the city of Rome. Hmm. Rome already by this time was several hundred years old, but he wanted to rename it Neropolis. Neropolis. And because he was the god of the Roman Empire, he decided that he needed a residence for himself, unlike any previous emperor, and he designed a plan for a house, and the house was 300 acres in size. Can you imagine a house 300 acres? He went to the Roman Senate. He asked for permission to tear down a section of Rome to build this house. The house was located today where the Colosseum is built. The reason the Colosseum was built was because after the death of Nero, Vespasian became the emperor, and Vespasian tore down Nero's house and built a Colosseum for the peoples to say, look how much better I am than Nero. He lived for himself. He was indulgent, but I have built the Colosseum for all the peoples. That's why it was built on that exact location. But the Roman Senate said to Nero, no, you may not tear down this most historic district of Rome to build your house, and you may not rename the city of Rome Neropolis. Nero was incensed. He went to his villa, which was outside the city of Rome. He was far from Rome, thinking that he was far from Rome. He thought it would give him an excuse that he could say that he had nothing to do with what was about to take place. He met with his servants. He gave them the command that on a certain day, they were to light fires in the city of Rome. Nero again thought because he was at his villa outside the city, no one would associate him with what took place. But he had dispatched these servants into the city of Rome, and they went into Circus Maximus, which was the big circus right in the middle of the city. 
and one little part of the circus, they begin to light the hay, and they begin to write the, light the stubble in that area, and the fire began to burn. Not only that, they went into several other districts of Rome, and the fires burned in Rome for more than 30 days. When they finally thought the fires were out, the embers would begin to blow, it would reignite. The metal in the city melted, the glass melted, and the real tragedy was uh, 750,000 of the residents of Rome, there were a million residents, 750 were slaves. The slaves lived in shanties made of wood, hay, and stubble. All the dwellings of the slaves went up in smoke, and suddenly they had a huge problem. Where are they going to put all the people that have lost their homes? They began rebuilding the city of Rome. Nero said, this is my opportunity. The area where he wanted to build his house had been completely burned. He had all the rubble removed, and he began to build his big house. Because there was not enough money to build the house that he wanted to build. By the way, is this interesting? Just trying to give you some background to the book of Philippians. Because there was not enough money to build his house, he began to mint coins which were falsified. They looked like they were silver, but in fact they were bronze, and they were just covered with a little layer of silver. He began to rip the people off, which is exactly what politicians are still doing today. But that began with Nero. And he began to collect money and save silver for the building of his house. And finally, the house was built. 300 acres. In front of the house was a statue called the Colossus, That's why later the big stadium was called the Colosseum. The Colosseum was built where the Colossus once stood. The head of the Colossus on one hand looked like the god Helios, but it was the facial features of Nero, and it stood nearly 90 feet tall in front of his house, and his house was completely gold-gilded on the exterior, and other elements were covered with mother-of-pearl. Just simply phenomenal. But rumors begin to move through the city of Rome. And people begin to say, have you heard? There's a rumor on the streets that Nero is the one who started the fire so he could build the house. And what became as a rumor suddenly began circulating through the whole city of Rome until it came into the Roman Senate and the Roman Senate heard these charges and they brought Nero to the Roman Senate in the middle of the forum, which still stands in the Roman forum in the very middle of Rome today. You can go to the same building where they called Nero for his trial. And the Roman Senate said, is it true? Are there any truth to these allegations that you're the one who orchestrated the great fire of the year 64? And Nero said, how could you think that I, of all people, would do such a dastardly deed to the beloved city of Rome? I love the city of Rome. And he began to say who he believed had created the fire. He said, there's a group in this city, and I believe they are accountable for the fire. They said, tell us, who is it? Nero said, it's this new Jewish sect called Christians. And they said, well, give us evidence. Why do you believe the Christians burned down the city of Rome? And under demonic influence, 
Nero began to lay these charges before the Roman Senate, and I'm going to give you just a taste of the charges which he laid against the Christians. Number one, he said, these Christians talk about another king and another kingdom. Well, that was against Roman rules. There was only one kingdom in the mind of the Roman government. They were talking about another king. This sounded like the subversion of government. In fact, they were talking about King Jesus. But in the mind of Nero, in the mind of the people, there was no room for any other king. And not only that, something very, very important. The name of this other kingdom that the church was a member of was called the church. Everybody say church. The word church is the Greek word ekklesia. The word ecclesia is a political term. It is not a religious term. It was not original to the Bible. It was original to the city of Athens where it described a governmental organ that made all the decisions in every city. And when the church was called the church, they were literally declaring, we are God's alternative government in the world. That's really what the word church meant. It's very powerful. Every time we say the word church, we are declaring that we are God's ruling voice to dictate and decide what happens in our cities and in our states. That's who we are. We are God's assembly. And when they heard that these people were calling themselves the ecclesia, the church, it literally meant they were claiming to be an alternative government and they claimed to have another king. This was forbidden. Not only that, Nero said these believers are meeting in illegal underground meetings. Back in those days, you could not have any form of assembly without the express permission of the government. And because Nero did not like them and viewed them as an alternative government, he never gave them permission. So every time the church met, every time the church met, they were violating Roman law but they had to decide whose law they were going to decide. And friends, sometimes we have to make that decision. Are we going to obey the law of God? Are we going to obey the law of man? The Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. The Roman government says you may not assemble. God says you must assemble. So the early church decided we'll obey God rather than man. But in doing so, they truly became violators of Roman law. Next, he said, not only do they have an alternative government and speak of another king, not only are they lawbreakers, but in their underground illegal meetings, they practice something called the love feast. The love feast. You can even read about it in the book of Jude. The love feasts. Well, the love feast was a Christian gathering where people got together, ate, shared a meal, shared the love of Jesus. But imagine, these were demented twisted, perverted Romans, when they heard about an illegal underground love feast, in their mind, this was a sexual orgy of the worst kind. And they began to circulate the rumor that Christians were sexual deviants. Now understand, the people circulating the rumors were sexual deviants. If they're calling somebody else deviant, what in the world were they saying about them? The deviants were calling Christians deviants. Then he said, not only that, in these underground illegal love feasts, they're also practicing something called communion. And he said, in these illegal underground meetings, one of their rites, one of their ceremonies is the practice of cannibalism. They are eating flesh and they are drinking blood. The leader of their sect said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. 
And in fact, Nero was so persuasive with that charge that the early church fought rumors of cannibalism for 200 years. 200 years. And last of all, he said, if you don't believe any of that, then let me tell you something that all of you know is true. You have heard these Christians on our streets, standing on our corners, publicly preaching, proclaiming that judgment was coming. They've even said that a great fire would one day come as a part of a judgment of the world. He said, huh, we should have listened to them. They were warning us they were going to burn down the city of Rome. They proclaimed fire and they brought fire. These Christians are the ones that had burned down the city of Rome. And by the time Nero was finished presenting his arguments, the tables had turned. The Roman Senate vindicated him and charges were brought against the new sect called Christians. And they were blamed as the chief arsonists of the fire for the city of Rome. And suddenly this group began to be hunted. They began to be persecuted. And in fact, the word persecute, which we read in the New Testament, we use all the time, is the old, old Greek word dioko, which means to hunt. Like to follow the tracks of an animal, to follow the scent of an animal. A great hunt began in the city of Rome, and not in just in Rome, but in all the principal cities of the Roman Empire. They were literally hunting for the tracks, smelling the scent, looking for any evidence of these believers. And when they were found, they were arrested, they were thrown into prison, and they were even burned alive. Many of you know the believers were burned alive in the Colosseum later. We know that during Nero's own lifetime, they were burned alive in his backyard. Believers were dipped in pitch, tied to stakes, and set on fire. And Nero would have huge dinners in his backyard in the light of burning believers. When they decided to extend the Appian Road from the city of Rome all the way to the south of Italy, they needed to work into the night. They needed light, so they took believers, dipped them in pitch, tied them to states, set them on fire, and they built that road, which you can still travel on today, in the light of burning believers, smelling the burning flesh as they laid the stones in that road. And it was at that time that the Apostle Paul was arrested. And when he was arrested, he was not arrested as a Christian. He was arrested as one of the chief arsonists in the city of Rome. Now, have you learned anything new already tonight? He was not arrested for his faith. He was arrested for being a violator of law, an ulterior kingdom, another king, for communion, for all of these things. But primarily, he was arrested as one of the principal leaders of the Christian sect who planned the great fire of Rome. So now when you come to Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, brethren, I want you to know the things that have happened unto me. Here is a man that really has done nothing wrong except he has loved Jesus. He's established the church. He's preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. But when we come to the book of Philippians, he is sitting in prison in Rome. He is literally the hottest potato in the Roman Empire. No one wants to be affiliated with him. And he's been placed in one of the worst prisons in the city of Rome. Now, let me tell you something about a Roman prison. 
When we think of prisons, we think about prisons like we have today. Maybe you think of a place like Alcatraz. But even Alcatraz would be a very nice hotel compared to a Roman prison. Roman prisons basically were cesspools. Very often they were places where sewage was gathered. And if you were placed in a Roman prison, it was generally believed you would never get out of prison. And in fact, because a prison sentence was so final, the majority of time, Roman prisoners were not even fed. They were called useless eaters because there was no sense to feed them because they were never going to get out of prison anyway. And once you were placed into a prison, a Roman prison, it was generally believed your face would never be seen again. That would be the end of you. Remarkably, Paul was placed placed in prison six times, six times. His story is simply remarkable. It is amazing that a man would be released from prison one time in the Roman Empire. Paul was released six times, and many of his epistles were written from those horrible, dark, dank places. But in Rome, in the bottom of the imperial palace, remember that next verse, verse 13? so that the gospel is known in all the palace. I told everybody to say the word palace. In the bottom of the palace, there was a prison called the Tertullian. Later it was renamed the Mamertine Prison. But it really was a big well, a big well. It had been lined with stone, but as time went by over the centuries, it became a sewage collection place for the sewage from the imperial palace. And the most notable prisoners in the city of Rome were placed into the Tutulian, later called the Mamertine prison. That's where Paul was placed, and Peter was also placed there. And when prisoners were placed into this horrible, horrible prison, which you can still visit today, it's one of the few prisons in Rome that you can still visit, you can see what a Roman prison was really like. It would have been filled with sewage. It's likely that any prisoners that were there stood in sewage, probably to their hips. Most prisoners died of starvation. They were chained to the walls. And because they were chained to the walls and there was no light in the prison except the light that came through a small hole in the roof, they couldn't see. Many prisoners lost their sight. They went blind in this place. We know that once Peter was there for nine months, and remarkably, Peter did not lose his mind, did not lose his eyes, and was released from there. But most prisoners were chained to the wall, and because they were chained to their wall, they couldn't really move their arms. And because they were not fed and they just died hanging there, they also rotted hanging on those chains because the Roman prisoners saw no need to remove a prisoner when he could just rot and fall off of the chains. And prisoners like the Mamertine prison were not just filled with prison, but they were filled with the corpses of dead, rotting prisoners of those who had already died in the prisons. And the Mamertine prison and other prisons just like it were also filled with prison rats who roamed across the top of the sewage, eating the sewage and eating the dead bodies and the flesh that was floating on the top. And from time to time, they would open a door in the side of the prison and all of the sewage and all the dead bodies would wash out into the Tiber River and then it would start all over again. 
And we believe that when Paul wrote the book of Philippians, he possibly was in that prison. He possibly was in that prison. With his arms chained to the wall, probably in this place about two months by that time, imagine standing there, no strength left in your legs because you've been standing. Standing up to your hips in sewage. The strength has gone out of your limbs, so you're hanging on the chains, which are corroded because of the dampness. The room is filled with infection and with disease, which is cutting into the flesh, which caused many prisoners to die of limb rot. And in fact, the stench of death was so deep in the prison that many prisoners were known to die simply by smelling the fumes that were in that place. But Paul was a Roman citizen. And because he was a Roman citizen, even though this seems like a terrible place, he did have certain privileges. And one privilege was that once a month, he was able to receive mail and he was able to send mail. Hard to imagine somebody could even read something or write something in that environment. His chains were undone, his arms fell. Imagine what your arms would feel like if they had suddenly fallen for the first time in 30 days as the blood come rushing into your limbs and it feels like pins, thousands of pins as your circulation tries to come alive in your hand. A light is thrust into Paul's face as a guard says, you have mail. And now Paul's trying to adjust his eyes to the light of the flame. And he reads and he sees that the church in Philippi has sent him an offering. Wow, that's amazing. Now you may ask a logical question, how could a prisoner in jail receive an offering? That's a very good question. Well, in the Roman citizen, if you were a Roman citizen in prison, every prisoner would open an account in your name and just in case one day you happen to get out, your friends could put money in your account so that when you got out, you would have something to start your life with again. And Paul has received information that Epaphroditus has come and he has brought an offering from the church in Philippi. Philippi has put money in his account. In fact, turn to chapter four. Chapter four will make a lot more sense to you now. When you come to Philippians chapter four, listen to what Paul says. In verse 16, for even in Thessalonica you sent once and again unto my necessity. He's talking about the offering that they have sent. And listen to what he says. Not because I desire a gift, but as I desire fruit that may abound to what? Your account. Now keep in mind, the church of Philippi had just put money in his account. He says, because you put money in my account, this is going to be accredited to your heavenly account. And then he says in verse 18, but I have all and abound. Look at his attitude. His attitude is one of such gratefulness, standing possibly to his hips in sewage, surrounded by death. And he says, I have all and abound. Attitude is the majority of what is needed to win any victory. He says, I am full having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, and then notice these words, an odor of a sweet smell, 
a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Paul says, wow, when I received your financial contribution, which Epaphroditus brought, when I received news of your gift, that is the best thing I've smelled in a long time. It was the odor of a sweet smell. There he was standing in the stench of death that would kill most men. But he said, when I received news of your offering, it brought such a fragrance to me where I was. Wow. But go back to chapter 1. And when you go to chapter 1, you find Paul's thinking about his situation. You find his thinking. For example, he says in chapter 1, verse 21, For to me to live is Christ, to die is what? Gain. He's thinking about dying. Dying sounds better than living. If you would look at verse 23, For I am in a strait between two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. But notice at verse 23, he says, I'm in a strait between two. The Greek word that is used here is profoundly important because it is the very Greek word which describes a tug of war. Paul literally says, I am in a tug of war. But in this particular case, he is the rope. He is the rope. He says, on one side is life, and life is tugging me, saying, live longer, live longer. On the other side of me is death, and compared to where I am, this seems like a better idea. I am in a straight between two. On one side, the tug of life to remain. On the other side, the thought of death, which seems like gain. And in fact, he says, really, what sounds better to me is to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better, the word depart, the Greek word apolousis, is the very word which was used to describe soldiers who sat the sails to catch the breeze so they could be driven along by the wind to the next location. Paul says, what I would really like to do is just set my spiritual sails, catch the breeze, depart from this earth, and be driven along by the Holy Ghost to heaven. This sounds so much better to me. But to abide in the flesh is more needful. In fact, when you go to chapter 3, Paul makes this remarkable statement. He says, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. Why did he write those words? Because he was thinking about his life. He was thinking about what he had done, thinking about what he had not done. He says, I count not, the Greek word logizomai, it's an accounting term, which describes a bookkeeper who has the original projections and then on the other side of the book has the actual numbers. When Paul says, I count not myself to have apprehended, he's literally saying, on one page, I have the vision which Jesus gave me for my life. I have my call, what I'm supposed to do. But when I look to the other side of the ledger, I see what I have actually done. And when I look at what I've actually done and compare it to what I was told to do, brethren, I see not that I have apprehended. I've done a lot, but I have not fulfilled everything in the original vision. And that's why Paul could not let loose. He had not finished what he had been apprehended to do. But look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 19. And in Philippians 1, verse 19, Paul says, For I know 
The Greek here is strong. I know, I absolutely emphatically know he's speaking from a pace of confidence. I know that this, the word this describes his dilemma, where he is, the stench, the chains, the death, the prison. I know this horrible, dreadful place will turn for my salvation. The word salvation here should be better translated my rescue or my deliverance. A better translation would be, this is not the end of me. I'm going to get out of this place. This is not my end. I know, I emphatically know, this will result in my deliverance. I'm going to get out of this place. And then he says why he knows it. Because of, what does he say? Your prayers and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. First of all, he says, I know I'm getting out of here because you're praying for me. How did he know they were praying? Because they sent an offering believing they needed to put money in his account. When he saw money was in his account, he knew somebody was believing he was going to need that money. He was going to get out of there. And when you hear people are praying for you and believing for you, it truly gives you a boost to your faith. It was a charge that he needed for his faith. He said, first of all, I'm coming out of here because you're praying for me. And then he says, and because of the what? The supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That's what the King James Version says. The supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. What in the world does that mean? It's very important. The word supply, are you all with me? The word supply is the Greek word epikoregias. That is a bizarre word to use in this verse. It is simply bizarre. And in fact, it is the only time it's used in the New Testament. It is a very, very unusual word, epikoregias. The word epi means on behalf of. The word koregias, can anybody hear any word in that? Choreography. It describes a choreography, a choir, a musical presentation, a drama, choreagus, something that is musical, some kind of a dramatic musical presentation. But when you compound it together with the word epi, which means on behalf of, that word supply literally means, now you're going to see why this is bizarre. It literally means a gift that is given on behalf of the choir, or the musical, theatrical presentation. Well, what does that have to do with the Holy Spirit, and what does that have to do with Paul being in prison? How does that fit into this verse? Well, this is the value of doing a word study. Where does that word come from? In ancient Greece, guess what? There was a choir, a massive choir. It had been completely choreographed. There were musicians, there were actors, there were singers. They were prepared for one of the greatest presentations ever produced. And just when it was time for the show to begin, the director came to them and said, funds have run out. And because the funds have run out, the show is finished. We cannot go on the road. After giving one year to training and preparation, they had such anticipation for their future. And now suddenly, the funds have dried up. Everything is finished. The show is finished. 
But a wealthy man, a wealthy man heard about their dilemma. And when he heard how they trained, how they prepared, how they worked, and now they had run out of funds, he was so moved by their dedication that the wealthy man came and, here's where the Greek word comes from, epikoregios, he gave a contribution on behalf of the choir. He gave them an endowment. And the financial gift he gave was so enormous that they didn't even know how to use it all. But when they received his contribution or his supply, that's where this word supply comes, suddenly they were empowered to go on the road. They were empowered to perform because they had received this massive contribution, this massive supply. That's what Paul has in his mind in this verse. And Paul is literally saying, you know, naturally speaking, it might look like this is the end of me. It might look like the show is over. But Jesus Christ is my great benefactor. And Jesus sees me here. Jesus knows my dedication. He knows I'm not finished. I've not fulfilled the original village page of the vision. I need to bring the ledger up to the original vision. I'm not done yet. And Jesus Christ, my great benefactor, is stepping forward and he's going to give me a brand new contribution of the Holy Ghost, a new infilling, a new supply. And because of the supply of the Spirit which he's giving me in this place, this show is going on the road again. That was his faith declaration. Is that phenomenal? That is just phenomenal. And against all odds, Paul came out of that place. He counted out of that place and for a time continued his ministry, wrote several more epistles, finally finishing 2 Timothy. He literally received a supply the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ. It really means from Jesus Christ. Jesus was his great benefactor. There he was in the middle of a tug of war. He the rope in the middle. Death pulling, life pulling, him having to decide. In fact, he says in that verse, what shall I choose? He was so close, he had the ability to decide, I'm going to live or I'm going to die. He had the power of choice. But we know from chapter 3, because he had not fulfilled everything, he says, I count myself to have apprehended. He couldn't make the choice for death. He wasn't done yet. So instead, he said, you know what? Maybe nobody else is down here with me. But Jesus is going to step into this cesspool with me. And he's going to give me a brand new supply of the Holy Ghost. I'm coming out of this place. I know this is going to result in my deliverance. I'm getting out of here. I know that because you sent an offering. You're praying for me. And because Jesus is my benefactor. And he has just given me a new supply of the Holy Ghost. All of that is in these verses.
And that is the reason he could write this book in the light of that torch and could write about joy 15 times. 15 times. Most of us have a hard time having joy in our nice houses. We wake up in a bad mood. But friends, I want to tell you, if he could be up to his hips in sewage with death all around him and write about joy 15 to 19 times and write to people in the free world and tell them they need to have joy, do you think they listened to him knowing where he was writing from? This man was not giving doctrine or theory. He was speaking from his life. He had embraced the spirit of Jesus Christ, and it changed his perspective. So my friends, you just need a new supply. And at the end of this message, I just want to tell you, Jesus is your great benefactor. He's my benefactor. And if you feel you're depleted or the show is finished or you can go no further, then you are in a great position to look at your ledger and you need to ask, have I really done everything I was born to do or is there still more for me to do? And if the answer is, I have not yet apprehended, then it's not time for you to think of retirement or the grave. You still have time in front of you. And rather than think about departing, you just need to throw open your arms and say, hey, great benefactor, I need you to give me a new support so I can finish that vision that you gave me from my life. And Jesus will empower you to perform. He will empower you. Well, how many of you learned something new about Philippians chapter one tonight? That's what was on my heart for you tonight. Jesus wants to give you the power to perform. The power to perform. We all have challenges. You know, last year I wrote two books, pastored my church, traveled 187 days. I produced 700 TV programs all in one year. That's amazing. That's amazing. My level of productivity is amazing. The young people who work around me are gasping for breath, trying to catch up with me. And they say, how do you do this? I film on location. I don't know if you've ever seen my TV program. I film on location for every single program. Recently, my guide in Israel looked at me and said, you have got to slow down. You are killing your crew. My crew is 30 years old. (laughs) Do you know how I'm doing it? Right here. Right here. This is the answer. This is your answer. I say, Lord, I'm feeling a little tired. I need a new supply. And bam, here it comes. And when it comes, you truly become Superman. You can do what human beings normally can't do. That's why in verse 20, Paul says, Christ is going to be, look at verse 20. Christ is going to be what? magnified in my body. Look at his level of expectation. He's not just expecting a little touch. He's expecting magnification of Christ in his body. And that is what we need to expect. And tonight I want to pray for you to receive a new supply. I want you to put your hand on your heart. Denise, would you come up here with me? 
Thank you, Lord Jesus. Just put your hand on your heart, all of you. Jesus is the benefactor. Here, just take your hand with mine. Father, in the name of Jesus, Denise and I thank you that you have allowed us tonight to be in Granville. We thank you for Pastor Dwayne and Jeannie. We thank you for your covering and your leadership on them in this church. Thank you that you've given me the privilege to speak your word in this place tonight. We asked you to take us into the Bible. And we thank you for transporting us into Scripture tonight. Lord, we can see Paul standing there, receiving an infilling that changed him. Father, I pray tonight for every person in this room, beginning with me and Denise, Pastor Dwayne and Jeannie, his team, and every person in this room. Lord, we're giving all that we have, but there's more for us to do. We have not fulfilled the original side of the ledger. There's so much for us to do. And Lord, tonight I ask you to step forward as a great benefactor. I ask you to give us a new supply. Give us a new supply of the Holy Spirit that will empower us to get up from where we are and to go forward to put the show on the road again until we finish what you've given us to do. Oh, we thank you for it. Just raise your hands and begin to worship God. Just thank him for that new supply. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you for that new supply, a fresh infilling of the Spirit of God that empowers. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus. Thank you for watching and being a part of our online family. Subscribe to our channel for access to all of our videos and live services. You can also be notified when a new service becomes available if you ring the notification bell. We cannot do this without you. You can support this ministry and help us reach more people with the word by giving at reslife.org give. Thanks again for watching. Be blessed.